And for those of you still with me, would you please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 and then 11. As we do each Sunday, I'm going to read the passage first. So would you read with me? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That is Paul. And then verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The title of my message today is Real Good news. Real good news. You see what I did there on the screen? Lots of talk about fake news today. Fake news is false information intended to manipulate and mislead. It's a powerful tool in the hands of wicked people. You know who the originator of fake news is, right? Satan. In the garden, Genesis chapter 3. Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Oh, oh, don't worry, you won't die, but you will become like Him. Fake news. A lie, a manipulation of information. And we all know the, the story. Eve ate it up. Literally. She ate the fake news in front of his face. I want to present to you today the antithesis of fake news. More powerful news than fake news. It's the real good news of the gospel. And I mean real in both senses of the word. I mean real as in truthful. It's genuine. It has facts, factual information. And then also real as an intensifier. Okay, it's not just good news, but it's real good news. It's really good news. The real good news of the gospel. The word gospel, evangelium in the Greek, can literally be translated good news. It is essentially a message. It is shared information. But the gospel is more than a message. We're going to see that today. It's a powerful message. It is an active message, active even today. It is a life-changing message. It is a saving message. The gospel is the most important message. 
that you could ever hold fast to, hold dear in your entire life. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God. Did you know that nowhere, there is no other uh, word or name in Scripture that is called the power of God except for Jesus Christ? But the gospel is called the power of God. And so, I want you to walk away today believing that the gospel is powerful and it's, it's the most important news for your everyday living. It's your most important news source for the day. And we're going to see this in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul presents the powerful activity of the gospel, the priority of the gospel, and the facts, the facts of the gospel. And so that is our outline this morning. Let's look first at the activity of the gospel. If you look back down at 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 1 and 2, there are a lot of verbs here. A lot of verbs related to the gospel, the good news. The good news that we need to remember or that Paul reminds the Corinthians of. It's the good news that we preach and we receive. It's good news that we stand in. It's good news that we're saved by. And it's good news that we hold fast to. A lot of verbs related to the gospel. I want to unpack some of those verbs for you to understand gospel activity. First, I want you to notice that Paul does not preach the gospel to unbelievers. Who does he preach the gospel to first in this passage? Brothers. Brothers. He says, I remind you, brothers of the gospel. And so, just here we see, the first thing we see is that Paul tells us the good news is as much for Christians as it is for non-Christians. C.J. Mahaney, author, writes this, the gospel is not just one class among many that you'll attend during your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building that all the classes take place in. And rightly approached, all the topics you'll study and focus on as a believer will be offered to you within the walls of the glorious gospel. In short, the good news is not just Christianity 101. It's 102. It's 201. It's 300, 400, and beyond. It's needed every day in the Christian life. You never graduate from the gospel. It's good news we need to be reminded of Every day. That's why Paul reminds them of it. Now the Lord knows I need reminders. That's why I use my phone app. I get alerts. I need those. We all need reminders, don't we? The Lord knows that. In the Old Testament, He reminds the people of Israel that they were once slaves in Egypt, but that God redeemed them. Deuteronomy 15. Peter the Apostle in the New Testament says, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. Reminders stir us up. Get us going. And of course, Jesus gave us reminders, didn't He? In, in the ordinance of communion. He says, this cup, this, this bread and this cup I give to you as a reminder to remember me, right? So we need to remember the gospel. 
We need to remember it daily. How can we do this? Well, how do you memorize anything in life? You, you rehearse it. You, you, as Jerry Bridges says, you have to preach it to yourself every day. I want to offer a resource to you. Or I want to really encourage you to go get it. It's called a Gospel Primer. Or primer. It's written by Milton Vincent. This is a Gospel Primer. You can see the subtext for Christians. This little book, really thin, is filled with hymns, meditations, principles, all centered on the gospel. And they're derived from Scripture. He has the Scripture references at the bottom of the page uh, in, this, in this book. You'll see them there. This is a fantastic resource. I'd encourage you to read it yearly at least, monthly if you can, daily at best. It is so, so good to remember and meditate on the gospel in the morning. Here, I want to just read a, a paragraph from this book. It says, Milton writes this, There's simply no other way to compete with the forebodings of my conscience, the condemnings of my heart, and the lies of the world and the devil, than to overwhelm such things with daily rehearsings of the gospel. We need to be reminded daily of gospel truth. It's important to be reminded of these things. Notice also that the gospel is good news that Paul preached. Paul preached. He says, of the gospel that I preached to you. The word translated preach here could be translated proclaim or to declare. It's more like declaring truth than simply sharing truth. Now, I know what most people mean when they say that I want to share the gospel, right? I want to be faithful to share the gospel. But did you know that the phrase sharing the gospel is never used in Scripture? That's not a biblical phrase. When you see the communication of the gospel in Scripture, this verb is attached to it. Proclaim the gospel. Preach the gospel. In Mark 16, Jesus says, go into the world and proclaim the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Paul says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. In Romans 10, 15, it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel. And finally, Paul in Ephesians 6 says, pray for me that I might boldly proclaim the gospel. Of course, preaching it or proclaiming it, it implies boldness, a sense of urgency, a spiritual concern for your audience, a, a call to respond. It's like you're urging them, you're pleading with them. And that's what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, we implore you on behalf of Him, be reconciled to God. So don't just share the gospel. Like, hey, Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the dead. Okay, I'm good. That's all I've got to do. Now they got to do what they need to do before God. No, no, no. Listen, plead with people. Plead with them. Proclaim it. Like it's truth you believe and you're convinced it'll change their lives. Look at the phrase, the gospel in which you stand at the end of verse 1. The gospel in which you stand. That verb is in the perfect tense. 
Now, the significance of the perfect tense is that it's an event that happened in the past, but with present ongoing effect. So think about this. Where did you stand without Christ? Before having a saving relationship with Jesus, where did you stand? Well, Jesus tells you in John 3, he says, whoever does not believe stands condemned. Jesus says again in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me stands against me. So that's where you stood without Christ. An enemy of Almighty God because of your sin. But now, in Christ, if you are in Christ, Romans 5 says that you stand in grace. You stand in God's favor. Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation now. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. So the gospel, this gospel message has the power to change your standing before God. That's power. To literally take you from standing condemned to standing in His grace, to being saved. And get this, here's the significance of the perfect tense. It didn't just change your position back then, but it keeps you standing in His favor today. The grace of God keeps you standing in line with God, with God, under His favor, in His grace. The gospel takes you into the ecosystem of God's favor, if you will. His grace, His righteousness, His love covers you and there's nothing and there's no one that can take you out of it. That is the power of the gospel. It saves you and keeps you. Now look at the next phrase. The next phrase. The gospel in which you stand, but verse 2, the gospel by which you're being saved. So this is in the present tense. This has this idea of ongoing. So the good news, it not only secures your position in Christ, but it also progressively changes you, conforms you into the image of Christ. It completes us. Romans 5.9 kind of has this similar language. It says, since therefore we've now been justified by His blood, kind of a past tense, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. So the sense of we are saved, justified, and He continues to save us, to see us through to the very end. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure you're familiar with this verse. It says, He who began a good work in you will do what? Will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Finally, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. Listen, the message of the gospel is not just a justifying agent. It is also a sanctifying agent. We need to see it that way. Again, the gospel isn't just something that we deal with at conversion and then, okay, been there, done that. No, no, no. We need the gospel to sanctify us every day. We need to be reminded of the truths of the gospel to grow and become more like Christ. Finally, Paul says here in verse 2, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
This word for hold fast has this idea of restraining, holding someone back or something back from getting away. See, those who truly believe the gospel will not allow the truth to get away from them. They'll hold tightly to it. They'll hold the convictions firmly, guarding them, protecting them, because their soul depends on it. See, holding fast or endurance is fruit of the gospel root. If God has truly changed you by the power of the gospel, then you hold fast to these truths and will not let them go. So I just threw a skipping stone over the significance of these verbs and what it means, what the gospel powerfully does in the life of a Christian. And I wonder, with all that the gospel does in us, for us, through us, do you really know it? Do you see this power in effect in your life? Do you recognize gospel power working in you and through you? Are you connected to gospel power every day? Reciting the good news to yourself. Rehearsing it. Remembering. I want to read one more quote from the Gospel Primer. Milton Vincent writes this, Outside of heaven, the power of God in its highest density is found inside the Gospel. This must be so, for the Bible twice describes the Gospel as the power of God. Romans 1.16, 1 Corinthians 1.18. Nothing else in all of Scripture is ever described this way except for the person of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.24, who is the subject of the Gospel. Such a description indicates that the Gospel is not only powerful, but that it is the ultimate entity in which God's power resides and does its greatest work. Listen now. Indeed, God's power is seen in erupting volcanoes, in the unimaginable hot boil of our massive sun, and in the lightning speed of a recently discovered star shooting through the heavens at 1.5 million miles per hour. Yet, in Scripture, such wonders are never labeled the power of God. How powerful then must the gospel be that it would merit such a title? How great is the salvation it could accomplish in my life? if I would only embrace it by faith and give it a central place in my thoughts every day. Are you connected to the Gospel? Do you believe it by faith? Are you remembering it daily to see this effect in your life? So first, live in the powerful activity of the Gospel. Secondly, Paul tells us to embrace the priority of the Gospel. Look at verse 3. The priority of the Gospel. The first line there, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. The Gospel is primary, not secondary. Most important. Not just important. It should be our soul's most prized possession. Have you answered this theoretical question? If your house were burning down, you know where I'm going with this. Let's say your loved ones are already safely outside, okay? And you have time to go back inside and grab one thing, 
One possession, what would it be? Those of you, you know, kind of with a rational mind might think, well, I need to get the documents. The things like the birth certificate, those things, social security cards, whatever. Maybe some of you, sentimental type, you want the photo album, right? You want those pictures. Others of us might go back for the PlayStation 5. What you grab reveals your most prized possession, doesn't it? What's most important to you. Now listen to me. When your life falls apart, when you lose a loved one, when the economy crashes, when America is attacked and World War III begins, what your soul holds onto is your most prized possession. The truth that you tell yourself. The the person that you trust when times are hard. Let me ask you, would it be the gospel? Would it be the gospel of your salvation? Would it be the truth that, well, God saved me, so I'm okay. He forgave me of my sin. He loves me more than anyone else could. He holds me. He is mine and I am His. Do those truths... Would they come to your mind in your darkest hour? Are those truths your most prized possession? The things you fantasize about during the day? The gospel? Or do your thoughts when you have nothing to do kind of just tinker out towards the things of this world? Possessions, worldly things. Is it the gospel? Because it doesn't matter what's going on in this world. If you don't have the gospel, you don't have the most important thing. If you came to church today feeling obligated, like it's something you have to do because you're religious, you've got to go to church on Easter, I'm afraid you're missing the most important thing. The gospel. Because the Christian knows, I don't just come to church on Easter because it's the religious duty. That's actually the antithesis of the gospel, which is free grace. The Christian comes to church on Easter recognizing the great work God has done for us through Jesus Christ and wants to worship in response, thank Him in response, and be here because the gospel has changed them. The gospel's most important. So is the gospel your soul's most prized possession? When the going gets tough, you need to hold tighter to the gospel. So live in the powerful activity of the gospel. Embrace the priority of the gospel. Finally, believe the facts of the gospel. It's real good news, remember. It is a message. And what is the essence of this message? Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he gives us gospel brass tacks. It's the shortest, most succinct summary of the gospel, I think, in Scripture. And in in this presentation of verse 3 and 4, he distills the gospel into two fundamental facts or, or pillars that we believe. Here are the facts. Number one, Jesus died for sinners. Number two, Jesus rose again. Brass tacks. There's much more you can say about God and His work of redemption from Scripture, but the Gospel, you need to present at least those two facts. 
Jesus died for sins, and He rose again. Paul then offers two categories of evidence for those facts. He offers empirical evidence and scriptural evidence. Let's look first at the facts. Jesus died for sins. Jesus is a real man who really lived and died. Historians do not debate, valid historians do not debate that fact. Jesus really lived. Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, writes this, Now there was about that time Jesus, a wise man, a doer of wonderful works, and Pilate, at the suggestion of principal men among us, had him condemned to a cross. A historian wrote that in the first century, a well-respected historian, a historian that nobody argues with. Jesus lived, and he died on a cross. Even other religions believe this. My plumber, Ali, is a Muslim. And I asked Ali, Ali, what do you believe about Jesus? And he said, I believe that he was a real man, that he was a good prophet. See, no one has a problem believing the fact that Jesus was a real man, even a good man, who lived and died. But that isn't what Paul said, is it? Paul didn't just leave it at Jesus was a real man and he died. Paul tells us why Jesus died. And here's the fact. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus didn't just die, but the significance of his death is that he dealt with sin. That's the fact we must believe. And to understand the significance of this, we have to understand sin, death, and atonement or forgiveness. Listen, Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's everybody in this room, including the pastor. And even the pastor's wife. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. That our sin does not earn God's favor, does not earn God's love, but it earns death. And so God requires a substitute sacrifice, something else to die in our place. In the Old Testament, he established the sacrificial system where the priest would kill an innocent lamb or a goat or a bull over an altar. In Leviticus 17, God says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it's blood spilled that makes atonement. In the New Testament, the author of Hebrews in chapter 9 tells us the sacrificial system was just a temporary solution. It really was not meant to be the end-all, be-all, but it points forward to a better thing, a better sacrifice. We know that permanent atonement and forgiveness for human beings will not be accomplished by the blood of bulls and goats. An innocent man must die in our place. And the Bible tells us that innocent man, by his one sacrifice, once and for all, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, like an innocent lamb led to the slaughter, gave His own life down on the altar, figuratively, but dying on a cross, not just experiencing physical suffering, but as a substitutionary sacrifice, as the propitiation, the Bible says. He suffered under God's wrath in our place. He was the perfect sacrifice. God's justice is satisfied. 
and His mercy extends to us because of Jesus. That's the significance of the fact that Jesus died for our sins. So it's not just that Jesus was a man and that He died, but He died for our sins. You must believe that. And like James reminded us on Friday, don't forget the cross. A gospel without mentioning the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is no gospel at all. Jesus loves you is not sufficient. It's not a sufficient gospel presentation. So first essential fact, Jesus died for our sins. Second, Jesus rose again. Now here's the rub with other religions. They might believe Jesus was a real person, that He really died, but the fact that He rose again, well, that would make Him like God, having, only, having the power over death. And of course, He is God. 1 Corinthians 15.4, He was raised on the third day. That verb raised is in the perfect tense. Do you remember what that means? Past event with ongoing significance, effect. So Jesus was raised, He was made alive, and guess what? He remains alive. The resurrection is a past event that happened and we believe in, but guess what? It has ongoing present effect in our lives, and in fact, it seals our future. Here's the significance of the resurrection. First, He is a living Savior. As James said, other men have died. Jesus Christ is alive. The angels asked the women at the empty tomb, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's risen. Second, Jesus is a victorious Savior. He's defeated sin and death by paying the full penalty. It, was, or it is finished was His final cry. And 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3.19 says, He boldly proclaimed His victory to the spirits imprisoned by death. Third, He is a resurrecting Savior. So not only did He rise again, but He raises us to newness of life. He grants new spiritual life on earth. You can be born again here, made new. And also He promises a renewed physical body in glory. His resurrection here, or in the past, seals our future resurrection. And that's really Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. He's building the case. He's, he's saying Jesus raised from the dead, and that is a fact. And based on that fact, we will, those of us who believe in Him, will rise again in glory. So in the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus Christ defeated the two greatest enemies of humanity, sin and death. He stripped both of them of their power, forgiving sin, atoning for sin, and then also defeating death. And those who believe in these facts, truths, are forgiven and made alive through Him. Those are the facts of the Gospel, and those facts have power to save. But unfortunately, not everybody believes these facts. Therefore, Paul gives evidences. Bear with me a few more points. He gives empirical evidence and scriptural evidence. The empirical evidence that he gives are his burial and his appearances. The fact that Jesus was buried confirms his death. He really died. This, this wasn't a, a David Blaine uh, illusion or magic trick. He didn't hold his breath for a long time. 
He was buried in a grave. Professional executioners saw him die. They pierced his side. Blood and water came out to confirm. They took him off the cross, saw him through to Joseph's tomb, embalmed and prepared for burial and all. They put a heavy stone over it, placed Roman guards on the outside to protect it. Jesus actually died. This was a proper burial. And on the third day, he rose, and not only rose, but he appeared to many. The fact that he appeared to many confirms his resurrection. People saw him alive. And not just one person in one place, many people in many places. That's what Paul goes through to describe. He catalogs specific appearances in a specific order. First Cephas, which is Peter's Aramaic name. So the Apostle Peter is seen as the primary leader of the Christian movement. It appears the Lord appeared to him first before the rest collectively. Then to the twelve. That's referring to the whole group of apostles. And I believe specifically referring to the event where Jesus appears in their midst in Luke 24. Then he appeared to more than 500 people at once. That's significant. This event is not recorded in Scripture, but maybe indirectly referenced in Acts 1-3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Then he appeared to James. This is the brother of Jesus who had become a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church. Then to the apostles. I believe this refers to the same group of the twelve, but a different event, possibly his final appearance before His ascension. And then last of all, Paul says in verse 8, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. This is after Jesus' ascension. The resurrected Jesus reveals Himself. He appears to Paul on the road to Damascus at His conversion. Ananias tells him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road So Jesus appeared to many, not just one person in one place, many people in many places. And all these appearances build a mountain of evidence that Jesus is alive. Even the historian Josephus, again, he writes this, when Pilate, at the suggestion of principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first didn't forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day. As the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, they are not extinct at this day. Josephus, a world-renowned historian, Jewish historian of the first century, is saying Christians still exist. People saw Jesus alive. Now, if I went up to you and said, I spoke with an alien last week, you would tell me I'm crazy. If a friend of yours came up and said, no, I saw and spoke with that alien too at the same place, knowing I didn't talk, you'd be like, really? And then if you started to see pictures of this alien all over websites, social media, and then not just pictures online, but hundreds of people in one place at one time came up to you and said, no, no, we all spoke to the same alien. He's not crazy. You might go, i got to check that out. 
And that's an alien. That's not the Lord Jesus Christ. Truly God, truly man, who who was prophesied about in the Scriptures. God told us this would happen. And that leads us to the second category of evidence. The Scriptures give evidence that Jesus Christ would both die and rise again. You'll see this phrase repeated in our text, in accordance with the Scriptures. In accordance with the Scriptures. He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. In other words, God's Word told us this would happen and it did exactly as He said it would. Two passages I want to submit to you, and there are more. Isaiah 53 and Psalm 16, verse 10. Isaiah 53 presents us the suffering servant. The Messiah who would die and substitute for sinners and offer Himself as an atoning sacrifice for sin. And In Psalm 16, verse 10, David declares, the Holy One of God will not see corruption. Another translation is that He will not see the pit of Sheol. This is another way of saying death cannot hold the Holy One. They should have expected that the Messiah would rise again. The literal fulfillment of these prophecies and many more provide more proof of the facts. This is the greatest I told you so in all of history. God said, and it was done. Jesus Christ died for sins. Jesus Christ rose again. He is the victorious and living Savior. Paul ends this section and says, "Whether then it was I who saw Him or they who saw Him, so we preach, verse 11, and so you believed. My question for you today is, do you believe it? Do you really believe it? And if so, do you proclaim it the way that Paul did? Oh, three thoughts as we just close today. Three thoughts that I want to leave you to take away. Number one, don't forget the cross. As James preached on Friday so clearly, don't forget the cross. Don't forget the bad news of sin, death, and hell for sinners. Without Christ, we stand condemned. We have to preach that. But then we proclaim the good news of the cross where Jesus died and He suffered in our place for our sins. Don't forget the powerful and glorious cross where Jesus died for sinners. The second thought, don't forget the resurrection. Don't leave Jesus in the tomb. Don't preach a half-baked gospel just saying Jesus died for your sins, Jesus died for your sins, Jesus died for your sins, but He also rose again. He's living. He's alive. He rose again victorious over sin and death. And He is alive and that resurrection has implications for us today. Don't forget the resurrection. And thirdly, don't forget the response. There are two ways to respond to the Gospel message. One way is to receive it by faith. To believe. Believe. And you will be saved. That's all you do is simply believe entrusting yourself and your whole life to Jesus Christ. And if you have not done that yet, 
do so today. Believe in the gospel of Jesus. Did you know that in Scripture, so there's obviously an inverse response, a different response to the gospel. Do you know how the Bible describes it? The Bible describes it as disobeying the gospel. Not just disbelieving. But Jesus says, if you believe, you'll be saved. If you don't obey my words, then you'll suffer an eternal torment. Isn't that interesting? That rejecting the gospel, saying that's not true, walking away, or, or saying, okay, I'll identify with that, but I want to live my life the way that I want to live. I'm not going to repent of my sin. I'm not going to entrust my life to Jesus Christ. I'm going to go my way. The Bible says you're disobeying the gospel. You're disobeying the command of God. And that has implications, severe ones, for where you spend eternity. I would plead with you, do not reject the gospel, either by profession or by your life. Don't come today, hear the gospel presentation, go, I'm just indifferent to all this. I don't really care. Yeah, that's good news for Easter, but for the other... You know, 364 days of the year, it doesn't matter much to me. No, I plead with you today, believe the gospel. Receive it by faith. Repent of your sins and entrust yourself to the only one who can deal with your sins, Jesus Christ. Believe that He died for your sins in your place and that He rose from the grave victorious over sin and death. That's your only hope today. And believer, that's the hope that you need to preach to yourself every day. You need to remember that and remind yourself of it. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that You would work through the preaching of Your Word, that You would work through the good news of the Gospel today. We know that Your Word goes out and it doesn't return void. I pray that the Gospel would be cherished by us as believers. That we would never lose touch with the gospel truths. We need to be reminded of them every day. And I pray for those here today who have not yet believed. I pray that you'd open their eyes by faith and that they would believe in Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose again from the grave. We love Jesus. We love Him. And we're we're so blessed and grateful that we can celebrate Him today. That we have that we've seen Him and that we know Him by faith. God, I pray that that good news would be ironed, sealed, branded into our hearts. And we would never lose faith. In Jesus' name, Amen.